Good morning. Uh, I am Eileen Sala of Little Lambs uh, Incorporated. Um, we're a prison ministry based here in Sebring, um, near the courthouse and near the... Um, <clears throat> last week, Pastor talked about Christ's Pregnancy Center and uh, saving a child from abortion. <clears throat> you know, and it brought me back to um, my roots in prison ministry because it was during an anti-abortion protest in Wichita a third trimester abortion center. Um, third trimester meant they did not make it out alive if they were born alive. And uh, this was one of the largest ones in the United States at the time. This was 20, 30 years ago. In 1991, we were with Operation Rescue, and the protest lasted all summer. Um, I've never been in trouble with the law, and I... Never certainly been to jail. <clears throat> but that summer I was arrested four times. And the fourth time, I was, you know, they physically put me in jail uh, before we bonded out. <clears throat> but that summer, as thousands of people came from around the world to protest this abortionist, I saw the greatest move of God and gathering of the body of Christ I've ever seen in my life. Um, <clears throat> once inside the jail, the non-rescue inmates were so eager to hear about the word of God, you know, I was shocked. Before Christ, I didn't have any mercy or compassion. You know, they probably deserved to be there. But after Christ, it, it, he changes you. And suddenly, I saw them through different eyes. I saw them through the Lord's eyes. Actually, the Lord was giving me his burden for inmates. Um, <clears throat> a few years after that, I, I married John Sala, and our, a month after we married, our first visit to prison was at uh, Sumter Prison in Tampa. Sumter has a youth prison, a large youth prison. And in our first service, we had the whole youth prison in this chapel, large chapel, regular inmates on the side. We did the service, did an altar call, and almost to a man, every youth raised their hand. And it was, it was a glorious day and sealed what I knew to be my burden in prison. <clears throat> now, myself and the 35 volunteers minister to men and women in prison and jail throughout the United States since 1998, right here in Sebring, Florida. Uh, after last service, um, a gentleman came up to me. And he said, I was a rescuer too. It's sort of a little fraternity. I meet him in different churches all around. I was a, rescue, a rescuer, and it changed our lives, literally changed our lives. So how big is our mission field? Well, since we minister nationally, <clears throat> the statistics are sadly impressive. We have one million men and women incarcerated in the United States prisons and jails. And we have another 3 million on probation and parole. Florida has the third largest prison system in the United States. And we have actually 106,000 incarcerated. And we have another 166,000 on probation and parole in Florida. <clears throat> 
They have a budget of $2.4 billion. Now, last year, we, um, <clears throat> we admitted 32,000 into prison but in Florida, but there were 34,500 released into our communities last year. Um, one half billion of those dollars goes to health services in prison. 47% of women incarcerated need mental health services. Uh, a large part of those incarcerated need drug treatment services. They do not get them. Budgets were cut. There's no longer um, <clears throat> drug treatment as such in prison. They rely a lot on AA and other services like Overcomers. Last year we had a K2. We had a K2 epidemic at the prison. If you don't know, K2 is fake marijuana, and it's very, very dangerous uh, mentally. A lot of um, <clears throat> side effects. Now, we minister in over 700 prisons and jails across the United States by correspondence Bible study courses. <clears throat> we subsidize about 50% of our inmates through um, return postage. They just have no funds. <clears throat> now, an inmate just has to write us a letter requesting Bible study, and within a week he will receive a packet, his entrance packet, and we usually enroll about 100 a month. And by the way, word of mouth is our greatest promotion in prison, inmate-to-inmate evangelism, telling their cellmates about the Lord and getting them involved in <clears throat> lessons. Last year, we sent 7,000 lessons into prisons and jails. With the lessons, we sent bookmarks, cards, uh, tracks. We used chick tracks, too. And the, uh, Bibles, the Bibles themselves to do the lessons. After completing 16 intensive lessons, <clears throat> graded by our awesome team of graders, we have 14 graders from SIM, which have been the biggest blessing to us. Uh, Moni takes the lessons there and brings them back, and it, it's just a great help. But after completing the lessons, each student will receive their own Thomas Nelson study Bible, soft cover, and or an open Bible. <clears throat> They're a $70 value, but in prison, it's kind of like a mini library because they don't have excess. Um, they have only these very little Bibles, paper Bibles, and it, it, it doesn't have a lot of reference material in it. We like to think of all our, <clears throat> our um, 7,000 uh, lessons being sent to prison as prison visits because each volunteer grader will take time and attention and will sit with the lessons and they will grade every scripture reference, and it's all scripture. That they will make encouraging remarks, they'll grade essays, they'll do some teaching, all of this, and when the inmate gets it back, he knows that a person has spent time and energy with his lesson. So it's like a personal visit. Now, all our correspondence with the inmate is spiritual of nature, by nature. 
Um, we don't do personal correspondence. We do not share our names or addresses. That's to protect our volunteers. We have one signature at Little Lambs, and it is, we love you, the solace. I even use that signature, ex- except on a certificate. <clears throat> now, we also uh, make a point of welcoming our inmates into to the Little Lamb family, And this is really important, and it's special. Just like you feel part of the Bible Fellowship family, these folks have destroyed family relationships. They have burned their families out. So they're in prison, and they feel very alone. So being part of a family means means a lot to them. Some have never even really experienced family like you and I know it. Um, so we help to give them that part of Christian life that belongs in family. Now, we also have a special, uh, a Spanish-language school of the Bible, and we do the same thing for our Spanish inmates. They make requests. Anybody can go online to our website, littlelambsinc.org, and request uh, inmate Bible study. The enrollment form is on the website. Now, we, you know, side effect of political world, we're making a real impact with detained immigrants waiting for deportation. Uh, We're very famous at the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, Arizona, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, After taking our course when the Spanish inmates are, are getting ready for deportation, they write us and they tell us, They want to take what they've gotten from us or from the system here, learning about God, take it back to their homes and their countries. They want to do the same thing over there. So I like to think of it as little mini missionaries that are going home. And praise God, what an opportunity. We even had a man send his lesson back from Mexico, but it cost him a lot of money to do it. We can't afford international postage right now. In fact, we're also very well known at our local post office around the United States, too. We spend about $15,000 a year just in postage. And, you know, uh, letters mailed from a prison somewhere in the United States will inevitably end up in our box. It happens all the time, not even addressed to us. And we do all this as a totally donor-supported organization. Now, along with our Bible study program, we've been ministering at the Avon Park Prison, the work camp and the, and the new unit, <clears throat> in a biblical boundaries and an overcomer's addiction recovery classes, Tuesday and Thursday nights. Uh, we were originally on Monday night, but Monday night was chicken night. If you're familiar with prison, on chicken night, everybody goes to the mess hall. So... It takes time for them to eat and to count. So in, uh, class was always late. So we moved to Tuesday night. <laughs> now chicken night is Tuesday night. <laughs> I just can't get away from the chicken. <sighs> the classes are usually six months, five to six months long, and we typically have probably 80 inmates enrolled in both camps. And we do this continuously two times a year. 
Um, <clears throat> we find that most of these men have had little or no godly role modeling in their home, not from mom, not from dad, or anyone. Usually they've suffered abuse, violence, and neglect as children, and the result is simply they do not know how to authentically love someone. All they know is abuse, whether it's verbal, physical, emotional, or spiritual abuse. So our mission is to reparent them biblically um, and they identify with the little lamb's concept of Jesus, you know, leaving the 99 and going out and seeking the one lost little lamb. They identify as the little lamb. One of my students released last year, um, a young man, and he's attending university in um, Orlando, brings his uh, fiance over for counseling. They plan on getting married, and they said, she's a Christian girl, they want to do it God's way. And, you know, I applaud them um, for uh, staying with Scripture before marriage. In our culture today, in their culture, it's, it's a hard thing to do for them. And uh, I, I want to support them as much as I can. Um, <clears throat> our goal is not only to produce godly men, but also to send back to families, wives and children, better fathers. The children are the real victims in all this incarceration and crime. And they deserve to be our primary focus. And they are. Teaching these men and women to truly love God, love their children, and respect their child's mother is an important part of our ministry. One of the tools that we use to accomplish this, they usually have to bring people out of denial, is the uh, study on the fatherless generation. The fatherless generation uh, gives us the truth about what happens to children who grew up in fatherless homes. Such an increase in suicide rates, incarceration rates, addiction rates, in rapist rates, when they have no father role model to identify with. It really shocks them, and it brings them a sense of reality. We also have the same classes in our building at 710 South Eucalyptus. Only there we call them the faith-based alternative to court-ordered anger management and parenting class. Now, we've had a depression and a great decrease in the number of providers for these classes. Isn't that great? So we are often the only option for many people, and we're the cheapest option. So we get a lot of unchurched unbelievers who opt to take our class, which provides us a unique opportunity to reach these people. And we have seen some great transformations take place place through our class. I saw a, a man came straight from jail one time, sat in the class, and I can't remember if it was domestic violence or children. And he, he cried the whole time. After class, everybody was dismissed and went home. We heard a commotion outside, went to see, and and there in the parking lot, this man on all fours, screaming out to God 
in repentance for what he had done. And he finished the classes, and he, he did so well. The last time I saw him, he came in in his suit, <clears throat> had a job, repairing his <clears throat> relationships, doing great. Our next class is this week, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and it's full. We also offer counseling at no charge. Uh, we have a women's codependency meeting on Thursday nights, and it's well attended. <clears throat> Working with all this dysfunctional family and lack of boundaries in addicts and codependents, I knew they needed more help. So then I met Miss Codependency, Mary Timberg. You all know Mary. <clears throat> She's been a volunteer with Little Lamb since 2006. And she brings years of program, real program experience, helping hurting women how to deal with life's issues but a godly way. Uh, Mary and I have sort of sponsored each other through the years, and I respect her so very much. Uh, their program is also held in anonymity, which means you can't tell anybody you, who, you were even there. It's secret. The meeting is facilitated by Mary and Ruth Hoffman. Ruth was a member of her original class, in, first class in 2006. This program is especially for women who have relationship problems, failed relationship problems, and family problems. Typically shows up as no boundaries. <clears throat> Our Overcomers Addiction Recovery Program <clears throat> here at Bible Fellowship began at Little Lambs, and Jeff does an outstanding job here at BFC for BFC, <clears throat> and we make referrals to them. Um, we have a building at 543 Magnolia, right behind the uh, old courthouse, and in that home we host the Hogar Ressa, Addiction Recovery Program. Hogar Reza is uh, a Spanish program, uh, Hispanic. Hogar means home. Reza is an acronym for home, a place for spiritual regeneration. <clears throat> uh, these are the men and women you see sometimes in the community selling pies. Um, in our Sebring house, we have four, uh, 15 to 17 Americans, American English-speaking men in the program. We host them. We pay their <coughs> housing expenses. <coughs> Our volunteers minister to them twice a week. The only fee for their program is an entry fee. The program pays food, lodging, clothing, although the men do have to work 16 months. They work with all the court system in Miami to Tampa. And um, I personally have literally seen them pick up an addict. You see them on the street, you walk by. They pick them up. They bring them home. They bind their wounds. They minister to them. And they offer them an opportunity to stay in the program. This is real compassion. You know... <clears throat> If you've ever lived with an addict or alcoholic, they burn up your compassion. Years and years of dealing with the same problem just wears people out. But these people have been there. They've been, they've been on the street, and they have the compassion that they need. 
<clears throat> now, I apologize. I have no video or photographs <clears throat> because we're not allowed to take them in prison. Um, a, f- a few wardens ago, we were allowed a graduation photograph, but the rules have changed. We can't do it, and our meetings are all confidential and anonymous. Now, 30% of inmates return to prison in the first three years of release. From six to nine years after release, even more come back. Now, we want to equip the men and women in prison so they don't come back. But they become men who love God or good fathers, husbands, neighbors, and employees. And I hope that you will support our little lambs in prayer, just as you have in your finances. Inmates being released from prison without a family face a very hard time in today's economy and social climate. So they really do need prayer. We have a table in the lobby. You can sign up for a newsletter, or you can give us the name and number of an inmate, and we will send a Bible study within the week. I want to thank you for all your support through the years, for your time and attention. And now we can worship the Lord for his goodness and his mercy toward all of us. Thank you. me to Matthew chapter 21. A couple of things that I want to say to you this morning as you look at Matthew chapter 21. Probably a lot of you are aware of what's there, so I won't do a whole lot of um, extra detail there, but I want you to know something as you enter into uh, Palm Sunday, um, as you enter into Matthew chapter uh, 21, there's some excitement that's going on in Matthew chapter 21. The Passover is getting close. Uh, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. If you go to the end of Matthew chapter 20, you see that um, he says to those that are blind in verse 22, and they stopped Jesus calling out to them and said, what do, you want from me, from, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord Jesus, open our eyes. So he opened their eyes. So you have now in Matthew chapter 21 a couple of things that I want you to see, and I'm going to kind of run through it kind of quick, but I think you'll, you'll understand what we're doing here. 
The first thing that I want you to see is I want you to see the entry into Jerusalem. This has been really interesting for me as I really sat down and thought about how Christ entered in Jerusalem. The other thing that I want you to see is the words that were shouted. Uh, Jordan has shared kind of some of that with you, um, but I want you to see a couple things as well. And the part that I probably like the most as I've studied Matthew chapter 21 is where Jesus did not go and where he did go. It's interesting to me as people are shouting, Hosanna, and Jesus is riding in and the the people of Israel saying, okay, look, you're the one that's going to provide victory. He went to a place that nobody expected, to the temple, to the place of worship. And he chose to say some things at the place of worship that I find very interesting. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 21. Now, you're going to pick it up. Two disciples are going to go, and they're going to go find this, this donkey that's never been ridden before, this colt. And they're going to bring it to Jesus, and Jesus is going to ride it into the city. I recognize that none of us have ever been in a scenario where some conquering king rode into Sebring and say, now I'm the one that's in charge. We have no real concept of this. We have no real concept of what it was like to transition leaders. You know, the, probably the most that we really have any concept of is, a, is the motorcade. You know, if somebody rides through a town, you know, if President Trump would come through, there would be a motorcade. That, but that doesn't really mean any significance to us because it's not like he's riding through saying, you know what, I'm in charge. I'm kicking everybody else out of leadership, and I'm taking over. And that's really what the nation of Israel wanted. They really wanted Jesus to ride in and say, okay, look, this is going to happen. But I want you to see how he entered into Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and he came to Bethage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent the two disciples, saying to them, do you ever wonder what two disciples went? I'm just wondering if Jesus said, you know, the two of you that thought you were going to be on my right hand and my left hand, you all need to go fetch the donkey. We're going to give you a little lesson in life humility. I don't know, but... Two disciples are going to go and fetch this donkey. Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And they will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble. Mounted on a donkey on a colt, on a full of the beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Something that I want you to see here, as you enter into this Matthew chapter 21, I want you to see how Jesus entered Jerusalem. He did not enter Jerusalem as a conquering king of the land. I'm pretty sure in all of the history, if you go back and look over how people were conquered, No king rode in on a donkey. And no king ever rode in by himself. It would have been the conquering king and his whole entourage of army behind him demonstrating, okay, we have the power to rule and reign. We've already conquered y'all, so now you get a chance to see this parade. That is not the way Christ entered Jerusalem. He entered in as a servant. He entered in saying, you know what? This will not be about me. Also, something is very interesting to me as you enter into this Matthew chapter 21 is the response of the people. I want you to see something. 
Then the disciples went and said to Jesus to direct them. Look at verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them around on the road. And the crowds went before and followed him and were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. That's what Jordan is talking to you. He said, they, they're shouting, save us right now. We want you to take control. We want to be the conquering Israel. We no longer want to be that, you know, servant Israel. We want to be the ones that's recognized, empowered, and in charge. You know what's interesting here? The people that took off their cloaks. And they laid them on the ground. I find that interesting. As they're waving their palm branches, they put it on the ground. I'm not saying that they're saying this, but as I was doing some study, it's interesting as they're shouting words, they're demonstrating with their life some actions. You know what they're demonstrating to me as, as I just look at this? It's an interesting opportunity for them to say, you know what, Jesus, we choose for you to be in charge. One of, the, one of the commentaries put it like this. We place ourselves at your feet even to walk over us if necessary. Shouting one thing, demonstrating another thing, saying, Jesus, we just want you to know it's about you. And it's interesting that it's about them because they believe Jesus is finally going to let them be the number one. It's almost like coincidental... Yeah, we love you, Jesus, right now because we know the best thing for us right now is for you to rule and reign and kick out the Roman Empire so we're in charge. The words that were shouted, Hosanna in the highest. Make it convenient for us right here, right now. Jesus, we're tired of being the servants. We're, try- we're tired of being the lower class citizens. We want you to step up, with, and we're, and we're shouting at you, and we know. And I don't know what they're thinking, but I love the imagination part of this. How many of them are walking along and have just seen Lazarus come back to life? Thinking, you know what? He doesn't have a sword. He's riding on a donkey, but that's okay. He lays Lazarus back to life. I'm sure he can take care of Rome. I know he's got amazing power. He's going to do it now. Now's the day. Hosanna, you're the one. Do it now. Save us now. I just wonder, you're sitting in a building, I know you're in church. Are you saying, Jesus, I want it my way? I, I have my preference, I have my wants, and I think you need to do it this way. Now what's going to be really interesting is the twist that's going to take place. It's very interesting to me where Jesus goes next. And it's the temple. Now look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now do you find that interesting? I do. You know why? Because I believe that that place was supposed to be a place of worship. Supposed to be a place of sacrifice. Supposed to be a place where those people would gather around to celebrate the Passover. Mom and dad's coming from wherever they needed to get to. Say, you know what? We're going to Jerusalem. 
Because we know there, there's a God there that loves us. And so we need to make sacrifices. One of the neat passages of Scripture, and I won't read it to you this morning, is this one. is Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And I hope as you're navigating along this coming week that you'll pause and remind yourself that Christ came to save sinners. And I hope every single one of us in this building will get to a place that we admit that we're a sinner, that we have issues, that we have needs. That's why he came. That's why he allowed them to beat him. That's why he allowed him to rip out his beard. It wasn't so that he could take care of the government. You see this? It's fascinating. He could have walked into Rome and said, okay, listen, you're in charge. Okay, no longer you're in charge. And he could have done it all by himself. He didn't need an army to go with him. But he chose not to go. He chose to go to the place of worship. A place where sacrifice should have been taking place. But that's not what's taking place in the temple. Corruption filled the temple. Actually, and and I was doing some research, there's Alfred, and and I'm probably not going to say his name right, but it's okay. You can trust me or I can give you my resource. But Alfred Edersheim is a guy that I was reading, goes back and look at Jewish history. And what was actually taking place in in the temple was the priests were supposed to approve the sacrifices. So, say for instance, the Patterson family shows up in Jerusalem, we're going to offer a sacrifice. We had to go present that to the priest before we could go and do the sacrifice. Well, what the priests were doing, they're thinking, you know what? We can make some money here. So instead of approving Patterson's sacrifice that they brought from their home, we'll decline it, and then we will offer for them to be able to buy their sacrifice when they enter into our temple. And what we know is they probably was charging them about 10% more for that same animal that I brought. They would decline my animal, but say, oh, by the way, come on over here. You can buy this one and charge me about 10 times what it was worth. It was even worse. Save the instance the Pattersons brought their sacrifice, but they didn't have the currency in Jerusalem. Oh, they had money changers there. So you could take whatever currency that I was bringing to make sure it would fit into the Jewish temple system, and then they would knock on another 25% on top of that. Them jokers were making a killing at the place that should have been the place of sacrifice. The place that should have been the place of worship. The place where the individuals should have been meeting people out in the foyer and say, come on in, do you need a sacrifice? Oh, we'll provide one. You made it to the Passover. You made it to the temple. You made it to a place where you can worship. Come on in. No, no, they're sitting out there saying, eh, we'll make some money off that joker. Come on over here. And I want you to see Jesus' response. And I'm pretty sure he didn't do it in a calm voice. He says some words. They're important. He says this. It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And he's tipping over tables. And he's kicking people out. The place that should have been a place of worship wasn't. Now, I want to show you these, these three things. Why are we gathering this morning? First reason. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a what? A donkey. A symbol of being a servant. Can I ask you a question this morning? 
What did you write in this morning on? And, you know, you got different things, different cards. But just, did you show up this morning and say, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm just here to be a sacrifice. Or some people rode up in orange Jeeps. Some people rode in Audis. Some rode in Fords. Some rode in Chevys. But you know what your, what your Savior rode in? On a donkey to tell his sons and daughters, hold on a second. I am worthy, but I choose humility. What words are you saying this morning? Oh, you could sing the song. That's great. But are you really saying this morning, in your heart, Hosanna, you're, you're the one that saved me. You're the one that's radically changed my life. Jesus, there's nobody but you. Is that what we're saying this morning? And here's the one I think is really interesting, okay? If Jesus showed up this morning, what table would he kick over at the Bible Fellowship Church family saying, you know what, I don't want that table here anymore. That has got to go. What would it be? What would it be in your home that Jesus would walk into your home and say, okay, that, 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 that needs to go. Because your home's a house of worship. Your home is a place where you seek my face. That's got to go. And so we're gathering, entering to, to Easter weekend, the weekend before Palm Sunday. This is what took place in Jerusalem. What's going to take place in your life? Well, there'll be some time this week that you pause and say, you know what? I got some issues. I think it'll be fun sometime, and we're never going to be able to do this, but I think it'll be fun for you to actually come live with Seth and Susan tonight and just see what life is like outside of a building so that you know that we're just ordinary people, that we goof off like everybody else. That we make mistakes like everybody else. Just so that we would know, you know what? I'm here not this morning for you. I'm here because I need Jesus today. I've got issues. He can, he can testify to it. She can testify to it. The list is long, so don't go ask him because you'll be here until way after lunch. But you know what else is true? you got issues. And my prayer is that you'll humble yourself and say, you know what, Father? I need your help. But you gather on a Sunday morning at a place of worship where you say, you know what, God? Because what's really neat is, and we're, we're, we're off to lunchtime, but you know what's going to happen next? People are going to be healed in the temple. That's what it was designed for. Oh, not always supernatural, lame walk, blind see, but anger, gone. Fear, gone. I'm complete because I have Christ. I'm chosen. You know what else would be cool? In your home, ladies, there will be less mirrors and less makeup because you are who you are in Christ, not on what I can fix. Guys, there will be less recliners, smaller TVs, because it wouldn't be about those things serving. It would be about, hey, what can I go out here and do? My father rode in on a donkey. My Savior rode in on a donkey. How have I humbled myself this week? What does that look like? I don't know. But it's Palm Sunday, leading up to the most amazing weekend for us. Forgiveness is provided. When he says it's finished on Friday, that means I will never be alone. There will never be a day that I won't have forgiveness of my sin. It's finished. And then three days later, he rose again. And now my life is complete because of that. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to gather around the scriptures. 
And so, Father, may we just spend some time thinking about it. May we spend about some time thinking about, okay, I see Jesus riding in on a donkey. He's a servant leader. Is that me? What words am I saying? We could say so many words. We could say, Hosanna. But Hosanna, Lord, this is what I need from you. Not Hosanna, I'm here to worship you, Father, because you saved me. Father, what, what table would you send your son to? Seaving, Florida. The 3750 Hammock Road and say, you know what? That table needs to be gone. That table is a hindrance to worship. That table is a hindrance to prayer. That table is a hindrance to the Word of God. What would it be? May we never be considered a place where you would say, oh, it's a den of robbers. May we be a place where people come and seek your face pray to you, watch you do amazing things in their lives. So, Father, send us out into our community the Sunday before, the Sunday before the weekend that will radically change the world because there's never been anyone that died on a cross and three days later rose again except my Savior, Jesus Christ. So may we celebrate that well this week. May we think about what it costs so that we can have forgiveness. Send us out into a broken community with the gospel, Jesus. Change lives. It's your name we pray. Amen.